to The Purpose Edge, where we explore interesting career and life stories that will help you find more meaning, purpose, and fulfillment in your life. And at the end of the podcast, I'll provide some summary thoughts about this conversation that we're about to have. And I'm excited about this conversation because my guest is synonymous with pink, and that's not pink the performer, but the color pink. uh, And that's because a major fundraiser for the organization she heads is the Pink Test Match, which if you're unfamiliar with the sport of cricket, it's a match involving Australia and it's held in Sydney every year. Her name is Holly Masters, the CEO of the McGrath Foundation, and welcome to The Purpose Edge, Holly. So lovely to be with you today, Phil. Thank you. And I've got to share a fun fact before we get going, and that is that we both have something in common, which is, which is axe throwing. We've both done axe throwing, and I should say... That's true. Yeah, it was done in a controlled, safe environment, but just tell me, what need was that serving in your life when you did it? Um, uh, well, I didn't think I realised that there was a need when I started uh, throwing the axe. Um, uh, however... I realized I wasn't being terribly successful and every time I was throwing it, it wasn't really hitting the mark and certainly wasn't sticking. Um, And then uh, the coach at the time said, you need to think about somebody that you really are not particularly happy with right now. At which point I started landing them bullseye every time. Oh, great. (laughs) And did you let out a big roar when uh, every time you let the action It was spectacular. I was, yeah, it was, I have to say it was very cathartic. Yeah, it's, it's great therapy on some level that we don't always understand. So uh, I've got to confess, my perception of the Mark McGrath Foundation was different to the actual reality of what it does initially. And my initial thought when I, I guess saw the brand and didn't hadn't investigated it was that it was about cancer research, but it's, it's not that at all. So could you please explain why it exists and, and what you do? Absolutely, Phil. And, and that's honestly, that's a very common misconception Um, and there's quite a lot of confusion across the sector so it's brilliant to be able to share that we do one thing and we do it exceptionally well Um, we fund McGraw breast care nurses and we do all of their professional development we do work very very closely with our sister organizations who take care of research or patient advocacy and community groups Um, But we are very, very focused just on making sure that we place breast care nurses around the country. So anybody who has breast cancer um, and uh, has the level of support that they genuinely need, not just for them, actually, for them and their families. Um, And it doesn't matter where they live across the country and there is no cost. So it is a, a very equitable approach to making sure people get the support and care they need. I imagine there's a lot of need out there. So how can you possibly supply and and meet all that need um you're absolutely right and when i arrived at the foundation nearly five and a half years ago at that stage we had just a few over a hundred nurses however we knew that we needed to grow enormously we're currently just over 200 and our commitment right now is to get to 250 by 2025 there are some non-McGraw nurses out there, um, but they offer quite often a slightly different service from what we do. Um, but yeah, it's it, and a part of the problem for us is that the need is also growing because incidence is increasing. So you can never say how much is enough. Um, so even if we set ourselves a target of 250, we know that you know that's going to continue to grow. So that means every year, also because we're paying salaries, we have to raise an increase amount in order to be able to fund our nurses and do their professional development. Great. And we're going to backtrack or circle back to the McGrath Foundation um, towards the end of this conversation. But I want to jump back up to your 
I would say interesting past and upbringing. Do you want to give us a brief <laughs> thumbnail sketch of where you came into this world and did your study and and those initial stages of your professional yeah. working life? Absolutely. Um, so I grew up in a household where um, my parents were very socially conscious and aware. Um, uh, they volunteered. My mother spent a couple of years working for Save the Children Fund. My father was a research physicist. Um, but they were always very um, connected to what was happening in society. Um, and my uh, my grandparents actually spent quite a bit of time in India also giving back. So it was something that we were always surrounded by as a child. My grandmother was used to teach deaf children in India. So it was something that was always part of our lives. And I think as a child, I grew up um, knowing that I wanted a career, but that at some point I also wanted to be able to give to society in some way, shape or form. I had no idea what that looked like. Um, and the reality is going through school, I had no idea. I wasn't one that what I wanted to do. I wasn't one of those people who was really clear about what it looked like. So in the end, I went to university and I studied music. Um, as you do. As you do. And uh, I had a spectacular time at the University of Birmingham, um, you know, on the Committee for the Wine Society, you know, all the, the really important things in life. Um, but after I finished, I actually travelled to India with my granny and um, I had secured six months uh, teaching in a charity based school, teaching maths and English in rural um, India. But the first month I spent it with her. Um, she spoke the local language, some Telugu, which is quite an unusual local language. And um, uh, we basically spent time with the community that you, she used to live and work in. And Honestly, that was a really um, important moment for me, actually, um, before I then headed into the world of work, still didn't know what I wanted to do and had a very eclectic career before I finally ended up in retail in my early 30s. Um, I'm working in marketing communications, um, but always with a view to eventually running businesses. That was always what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, I was fortunate enough to land in a fabulous global organization called Estee Laura Companies, um, who have a history of really investing in employees. Um, so I had the opportunity to have some fantastic professional development over my time there and work on a number of different brands in a number of different countries. Um, and I wouldn't be the leader I am today if that hadn't happened, really. Right. And I guess coming back to that first major, well, not your only major positive influence, because your parents were certainly leading by example there and your grandma yeah. was. I mean, what what sort of a person was your grandma? It must have been an extraordinary self-starter and just go-getter. Yeah, honestly, I think she's, um, what I've realised in later life, she's actually been the heroine for me and just the most enormous influence. Um, I wasn't very happy when I was seven and she went back to India. So she was widowed in her 50s. My grandfather died when I was, you know, about not even two. Um, and then, then she retrained at that point. Prior to that, she'd been a chemist. Um, and I, yeah, so basically between seven and 14, we would write letters constantly and we would buy magazines and ship them off to the schools over there that she was working in. Um, but I didn't really understand her influence or what an incredible person she was until I traveled to India with her. And uh, we went to the rural community where she worked, a place called Dornacol, which was a long way outside the nearest uh, big city, more than six hours train ride. Um, and I, realized that you know here was a family that she bought a 
bridge for, another one who she paid for a motorbike so they could set up a business, another one who she basically pulled together a group of people in the UK where they raised money and it was funding a group of widows who, if anyone knows what happens when you are a woman, you belong and married in Indian society, you belong to the husband's family. And so if your husband dies, then you can be kicked out and basically you're homeless. So I had the opportunity to see the incredible influence that one person could have and was actually brought into that world. Whilst we were there, um, we visited a school um, literally in the slums of a very big city called Hyderabad. And it was uh, like a preschool for sort of four, five, six year olds. And um, when we arrived, um, you know, we were fully garlanded and um, they basically unveiled the fact that, you know, they now wanted to call this the Joyce and Holly Ross, Ross was my maiden name, the Joyce and Holly Ross kindergarten. Um, and all we were literally handing over was, I don't know, maybe a hundred dollars. And just spending time with them and, and, you know, doing, nursery rhymes, incy wincy spider teaching the kids that sort of thing and seeing seeing the amazing impact that just one person can have by doing small things in a, in a way which has incredible integrity. It really opened my eyes and I suddenly realized she just wasn't my granny. She played an incredibly important role in so many people's lives. And it made me really think long and hard because I she left and then I had five months where I was by myself um the only um the only um white person in Sikundarad at that point which is now a huge international city but at that stage it was very local and um I was very isolated and I had a lot of time to think about you know what was important to me and how could I how could I how could I honor what she had achieved and learn from what she had done in a way that um, would be really fulfilling for my life too, because I saw what it did for her. Well, I was going to ask when most of us are 21, I think you're around 21 at yeah, that time. Yeah, 21. We're generally thinking, well, what's the next pub night we're going to? So how, how do you process that when you're that young? You know, how do you process was it a conscious thought that that really shaped you in your direction or was it just a, an experience that you now had under your belt and you're still pointed in any direction? I think, you know, prior to that, although I'd been really, you know, my family's influence, although I'd been connected into thinking about society and the role you play in volunteering and all that sort of stuff, I hadn't really realised the impact, actually. So the the... The, the the eye owner for me was really the impact that you can have either as an individual so one-on-one or one-to-many and that's something that is very important to me right now so when I think about my personal purpose and when I have defined that I look at how I influence and impact others on a one-to-one basis and a one-to-many because I believe that both have incredible value and I know I personally get very different things from those two experiences I think at that stage, you know, I was incredibly naive, you know, and and I just I just knew that I admired her enormously and I hoped to learn from that. But, you know, there I was in a country of you know, billions of people and horrendous poverty in some areas that I was exposed to. And 
just trying to learn how to navigate some of those pieces, both working in, in India and then also traveling as a tourist in India, which I really didn't enjoy because I started being treated in a very different way, whereas I'd actually lived and worked in the community, which I adored and subsequently went back a number of times after that. Um, yeah, it was it was almost overwhelming at the time. Um, certainly when I was fitting in the the, the uh, little room that I had um, in the boarding school that I was teaching in um, with bars on the window. And as soon as I opened, the, if I opened the shutters, literally I'd have a hundred children peering in because I was the novelty. So I literally lived in a, a dark, like I kept the shutters closed most of the time because otherwise it was literally like being in a zoo behind yeah. bars. Um, so I, it was a, it was quite a, a challenging experience. It wasn't easy, um, but it made me think long and hard about um, what was important to me. I suppose I didn't know how I was going to do it. I had no idea. I had still had no clue. Um, the plan at the time was maybe to go and teach somewhere else. Like initially, I'd actually thought about spending another six months in in Africa. Um, doing something similar to try to try and experience a different culture and get some different perspectives as well. And that actually never ended up happening, um, partly because I met my first husband and then ended up teaching in an English school. But um, that's a whole other story that we don't need to get into. <laughs> well, we won't go into that particular bit, but you ended up back then in London working, I think, as you said, in PR and, and comms, which yeah. is a fair way removed from teaching people, uh, kids in India. So yeah. how and why did you end up in PR and comms and how was so when I yeah when I first came back um I actually started teaching English to uh, as English as a second language and I started teaching in one of the biggest co-ed um private schools in the UK um and being a resident tutor so I used to do um uh social health education all of those sorts of pieces as well as sport and English teaching and I realized that that wasn't the career I wanted and I I looked at my skills. Why, why was that not the green? Um, because, so what I actually really loved was all of the, the uh, personal social health education stuff that I was doing. I didn't really enjoy the classroom type stuff. Um, and I looked at actually doing a psychology degree at that point. It was a master's actually. Um, and um, I talked to a couple of universities and they essentially said, yes, we would love you to have you, but we want you to have a bit more life experience before you do that. And I just felt... I couldn't do the job as well as I wanted to do it without having some formal training. So it was time to leave. Um, and I looked at various different options based on my skills, um, how I like to work. And uh, one of the, it was really interesting. I worked with a careers consultant and they came up with management consultancy, um, uh, communications and people and culture. And hilariously, that is what I do right now. At that point in time though, um, I looked at management consultancy and I tried to get into a couple of postgraduates, but I was a little bit old and just didn't really fit the mould at that stage. Um, I couldn't really understand the, you know, what people and culture or HR, as it was called at that point. I didn't really think that was going to be terribly interesting, but the comms part sounded very interesting and very much up my street, which mm -hmm. is why I landed and then ended up co-founding an agency where we worked with you know, the Science Museum, with the BBC. We worked with some really interesting clients in the science and education space, mm -hmm. but actually ended up, one of our clients was Estee Lauder. And that's how I made the bridge um, to going and working for them. You know, so that was a, but I went, I went having 
co-founded this organization and been very much part of a startup and recognizing that I needed to get in through a comms door with Estee Lauder, but I actually came through a business development mindset. So my plan was always over time to expand that. And, and that's actually what Lauder allowed me to do was to grow with the organization in various markets and start in the communications manager role in the Estee Lauder brand in London and eventually end up as vice president Asia Pacific for the Clinique brand across 14 markets running a billion dollar business. So it's, that is definitely, a, I'm very grateful for being, you know, for being given that opportunity. Um, and it's something that you get sometimes with global brands. Mm. I'm still marveling at your career advice way back when, which sort of forecast the job that you're in, you said you're in now, which is yeah. fantastic. So great methodology, whatever. Yeah, it's really interesting because now when I talk to people, I say that I own three things in the business. I own strategy, I own P&L, and I own people and culture. Um, and of course, you know, communication sits wraps around all of that. Um, uh, and I'm, I, I know that I have many, many other gaps, and so I recruit to fill those <laughs> with my team. So now coming back to your Estee Lauder experience... I mean, that's, uh, that must be incredible if you end up running, I think it was from Hong Kong, you were running 14 countries and you said a billion dollar uh, yeah. revenue. Um, yes. And what sort of pressures does that put on your life? Um, it was a very challenging three years. Um, so I've been with the Estee Lauder brand, as I said, in London, after I moved to Australia 18 years ago. Uh, so I'd met my husband in London, he's Australian, and we moved uh, nearly 18 years ago back here um and fairly soon after that i rejoined lauder and started running some of their prestige and luxury brands in australia to begin with and then across um in new zealand as well um and they're very good at giving people internal opportunities um so i was traveling a little bit but at that stage my husband was traveling enormously um our entire lives we've always been in roles where there's been quite a bit of travel and then the opportunity came up for hong kong and during those three years, we literally, both of us traveled 220 nights a year. So it was incredibly rare for us to be in Hong Kong at the same time. We tried to be, sometimes maybe meet in another country for a weekend because we'd be kind of passing through or something. But it was an extraordinary experience because also, you know, I was working across multiple time zones and reporting into the global team in New York. So effectively, I was, you know, I would start work at sort of five o'clock in the morning and often I wouldn't finish till 11, 12 o'clock at night, particularly if I was in the markets, because when you're in the market, you have to be with the local team from probably about eight until nine o'clock at night. Mm. Then you've got to manage all the other 13 markets either before that or after. So um, I learned a lot about boundaries. I learned a lot about, um, you know, put the classic of you know, you've got to put your own oxygen mask on first uh, before helping others. So for me, um, I've always, I've always been, um, I've always been quite focused on making sure that I uh, look after my fitness um, and my diet, but I've never, I haven't been terribly good at looking after sleep. I learned a lot about the importance of sleep whilst I was over there, um, particularly with our travel. So I was also traveling to New York three or four times a year, the UK a couple of times a year. So um, it was a time when I learned so much about how to manage myself as a leader in order to have impact. 
across many, many, many different cultures, mm. recognizing how to work with people in so many different ways. Um, and that was a privilege, a real experience. Um, and I think that, you know, the um, it also, I also learned that I didn't want to do a global role. I was asked to do a global role at the end of that three years. And I just knew I would spend my entire life on the plane. Mm. Um, so at that stage, that was the point when I sort of said, you know, should I, I'd always planned to move into the sort of for purpose sector full time. And at that stage, I decided, right, I'm going to, after, I'm going to leave the, after the three years, kind of come back to Australia and I'll take six months off and I'll make a decision, one more corporate gig before I go into full purpose, or we'll see, you know, or I'll, I'll go straight there. And then serendipitous. Lee, um, I got a call the weekend before I finished my job in Hong Kong, and it was for this role. Um, and honestly, um, there is no better fit for me with my personal and my work experience than CEO of the McGraw Foundation. And so I just feel extraordinarily privileged that this came up at that moment. Mm. And the interesting perceptions of any charity or not-for-profit operator, um, sometimes people don't think of them as businesses, but they yeah. are businesses. They're in the business of providing or helping in some way. Do you think uh, there's a long way to go still in terms of rectifying understandings about organisations like yours? Um, it's really interesting because I've now worked across both sectors and I work I work at a, um, also with a group of CEOs and leaders as part of the Leader for Impact Network. And that has allowed me to see that there are incredible strengths in the commercial space and also in the for purpose space. There are often misconceptions about what the other one is like, and we can both learn from each other. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the old school view that you need to bring in somebody commercial in order to run a charity in a successful way. It is absolutely true in some circumstances, but not nearly as frequently as you would imagine. There are a lot of extraordinary, very professional leaders in the charity sector, for purpose sector. Um, and you get bad leaders and managers within the commercial environment. So it's not black and white, but I do think as particularly in the last five years where the recognition of the role of purpose in any organization has become much more granular and real. And you've seen um, for purpose organizations, but in the commercial space really leverage that and the blurring between what was traditionally an NGO or not-for-profit, my, which my chair hates, he always says, no, we're not for loss. And that's absolutely right. But for me, that doesn't really explain what we do. When I talk about our sector, I talk about profit for purpose. Um, and I think that cuts across a multitude of different business models. It's more about a mindset of where, where your starting point is for the reason for being. So quite often the cultures are different in those two sectors. Do you think they're converging over time or, they, or will they always be a little different? I think they'll always be a little bit different, um, partly because of the way society views the roles of charities versus commercial, even down to a level of influence with government, for example. You know, we're one of the largest sectors in terms of our contribution and number of employees, um, but we we don't necessarily have the level of influence um, than other sectors or the whole of industry, for example. I do think um, one of the things that's happening that's quite interesting within the traditional sort of charity space is that 
um, what we are now all recognizing that the role of ESG and purpose um, is not just about the, the reason the charity was set up. So that is not enough to deliver a values-led um, uh, environment and culture for a charity. You need to be doing all of the other pieces too because the expectations of stakeholders and our people is that it's not just the purpose that we were founded on, founded for, it's actually about what's our role in society across the whole of the ESG space. So it's interesting, I think that it's easier for charities that have a very clear purpose because they were founded on that, but very clear to drive that. It's, it's embedding that in, organized, in commercial organizations, as you know, is incredibly valuable and perfectly possible. But that journey to connect people, particularly in support functions, can sometimes be more challenging mm. um, because it's not so front and center. My finance guys, my IT guys know exactly how their role connects to the breast care nurses. Much, much more difficult if you're in a commercial space. Mm. And for um, people who actually aren't familiar with your foundation who might be listening, um, maybe just briefly how it, it really came about in the first place, the people involved. Yeah. And then I understand you were tasked with setting a vision when you first got there, quite a long-term vision. So please explain. Yes. So um, uh, many of your listeners, I'm sure, will have heard of Glenn McGrath, um, probably one of the world's best ever fast bowlers. Um, he um, was, his partner, Jane McGrath, was diagnosed with breast cancer, age 31. Very, very young. He was still playing professional cricket at that time. Um, and um, she recovered, went through treatment. She was in survivorship. Um, they got married, had a couple of kids, and unfortunately it returned um, and it had metastasized. It was in her bones. And what that then meant was, of course, actually that's a, a terminal stage. Now, people can live, live nowadays with metastatic breast cancer for a very long time, you know, 10, 15, maybe even 20 years, depending where it is. But certainly at that stage, it was much more challenging. But she and Glenn felt that telling their story, even if it improved just one person's life, then it would be worth doing. And so they created the foundation with a sole purpose of funding breast care nurses um, and making sure that everybody had access to them. That, that was the goal. But it was a pretty lofty goal at that stage. Um, and, you know, when Jane died, um, sadly, in her early 40s, leaving two young children and Glenn, um, we had a handful of nurses, but we had just secured a commitment from the federal government to add a substantial number. Um, and we also knew, she also knew, that the pink test was going to happen, but unfortunately she didn't get to see the first one. So um, that was 18 years ago that the foundation was founded. Um, and I joined nearly five and a half years ago now. Um, when I joined uh, our chairman, John Condy, who's been with us for over 10 years now and is just an amazing steady hand on the rudder of our ship, um, he and Glenn interviewed me. And when I joined, they said, we really want you to do two things. We need you to accelerate growth because breast cancer, we're growing, but breast cancer is growing faster than we are. So we need to, we need a proper acceleration plan. And secondly, we want you to define what the foundation should stand for in 10 years time. And uh, my background really is, in, is driving transformational change in organizations. And so traditionally I've spent 
to maybe three years in every role that I've been in because I go in, I look at the business, I work out what we need to do, put a plan in place, drive that change process. And then when it's in good shape, I kind of move on to the next thing. So when I started, I really thought this was a two to three year gig for me. However, when I got into the foundation and I realized what the potential could be, what that 10 year vision could be, I actually realized it didn't need to just be 10 year, it could be a 50 year vision. And in fact, nearly two years ago, we launched our own internal 50 year mission, which sits alongside our external mission, which is to make sure that no one goes through breast cancer without care. And that honestly is incredibly exciting. Um, we've been given an enormous opportunity over the last 18 years to build a unique model of care, which we have codified and is now recognized as gold standard supported care nursing. We happen to operate in the space of breast cancer, but we're now recognized internationally for that. Um, and what we believe is that actually that model has huge resonance and relevance for many other tumor streams. And so we have been working across the sector to create a model for advanced cancer patients, so anybody with advanced cancer. And we put a proposal to the previous federal government just prior to the election um, around what that could look like. And so we're now having a conversation with the current federal government about how, as a sector, we can support anybody with advanced cancer with a supportive care nurse. Um, That's, fingers uh... crossed. Quite a that's quite a transformation and when you think about the origins being based on someone who was quite well known in glenn mcgrath there's must be a lot of micro charities out there based on well-known athletes and yes. celebrities and so on but this one made it to the next level and and you're a key part of that journey and now you're going to another level again yeah what what is it that has made the mcgrath foundation successful where others perhaps don't succeed um, I think that we have uh, been very focused. I think one of the challenges for many other charities is that they're trying to do multiple different pieces. Um, so there might be some, a part, part of their role might be advocacy, part of their role might be research, part of their role might be care, part of their role might be education. And there's never enough money to do any of them, you know, as well maybe as you want to, and you have to try and do everything. So I think the fact that we only fund nurses and do all their professional development is a very clear proposition. I think one of the other things is that um, when you are talking about nurses and you can actually talk to somebody who has had the support of the nurse and they can tell you how grateful they are, that is an incredibly resonant, um, incredibly resonant moment. Uh, there's been some research um, in, the re in recent years looking at um, lifting individual happiness by the way you um, invest in, or with purpose item, you know, in either areas of purpose or doing something individually. So if, if it's led by, there are sort of three key areas, personal gratification, if you're doing something to make yourself feel better, you know, going for massage or looking after yourself in a particular way, something that is more about helping the world generally on a beach cleanup day, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third area is where you um, actually do something that immediately benefits an individual and they say thank you back to you and they recognize that. And if you look at the metrics, the, out, the output of the research is, you look at the metrics, the first two, you get a little bit of a bump in terms of how it connects you to your purpose and, and, and your happiness score. But that third one, 
when you can see the impact that you're having and somebody, a person says thank you for it, um, has a huge impact on somebody's happiness and also their sense of connection to society, which as we know is so critically important when loneliness is a, you know, a really deadly disease as we know. Mm. Um, so I think the fact that we work in the area of nursing, that we have this very close relationship with patients and nurses, and the fact that we are very focused has really helped us. But I also have to say that Glenn as our president and also Tracy, who is Jane's best friend and still is our ambassador, they are incredible at telling their stories and very generous. They're in, you know, Glenn is entirely pro bono in his support for us. Um, and there are no egos. So legacy for both of them is not about what it means in their names or in Jane's name. Their legacy is about how many patients and families across Australia have we supported. So th that generosity of spirit and that approach to collaboration across the sector, all of those sorts of things is what has actually supported me to be able to go out and have these kind of com conversations. You know, there are many in charities who feel that they're in competition with each other because we're all fighting over the dollar, if you like. We firmly don't believe that. We know all the data shows that if an individual gives to one charity, they're not just giving to one, they're giving to multiple. And so you can sit alongside multiple other organisations and really talk to the same the same individual because they are a giving person and they want to do that. Um, so I think that culture that had been set empowered us. And because of what we do and the way we do it, that's what has really helped us to accelerate. I imagine you find it pretty easy to recruit nurses into your operation. Um, we we certainly we certainly don't have um I don't I'm not sure I'd say easy. So we certainly have lots of people who want to join us. We have fairly high level of qualification that's required. They're very experienced nurses with five years of breast cancer nursing experience plus a post-grad cert. Um, and we always like to find somebody in the local environment because they've got the established relationships and knowledge of the local environment. And that local knowledge is much harder to learn than upskilling somebody and pushing them through a grad cert qualification. So um, we have many people who want to join us. We run a scholarship program as well, and they feed the ones that we recruit. Our attrition is almost zero. The only people, the only reason people leave, nurses leave, is because either they retire, and quite often they stay on a few years extra, I'll explain why in a minute. Either they retire or they move location. And the reason we have such, um, such high engagement um, among this group of nurses at an incredibly tough time in the health system, you know, imagine what it's they're surrounded by in the last few years. Um, we don't pay them anymore. They get the, the award that is relevant in their local environment, so we don't pay them anymore, but they do get excellent professional development, which enables and empowers them to actually be able to deliver on their vocation, which is supporting patients. We also free them from the hierarchies of the health system and the politics because they're actually empowered to genuinely be the advocate of the patient. Well, you, you can't put a value on that. No. And honestly, that is gold. Also, they are working fixed hours. We offer lots of part-time roles because we recognise that, you know, many of them have caring responsibilities in other areas of their lives. And so this is a role where they are delivering huge impact in a way that works for their very, very busy lives. 
And that's how we're also able to extend people beyond the usual retirement age, because we can have them doing two or three shifts a week, and they're still adding enormous value to their local community. So I think it's a real, it's actually one of the conversations we have, uh, we're having with both state and federal governments, because we've all read the stories about the number of people that are leaving the health service because of what they've experienced in the last few years. We, looking at what we've achieved, you can see it's not about salary. It's actually about how we support and empower them to genuinely have the impact that they feel passionate about. I'll certainly look forward to seeing how your model evolves from here and expands. That sounds exciting, a little bit scary at the same time. Yes, it is. Um, and we have to make very sure that, you know, one of the things that, that Glenn always says to us is that um, he he believes that if we can help, we should, as long as it doesn't compromise our ability to deliver on our primary mission. And so that's the thing that we always hold true. Um and as I say, you know, that, that generosity of spirit, that desire to help um, is has always been incredibly strong. So, yeah, it's super exciting, but it doesn't happen um, in isolation. It only happens with collaboration with enormous numbers of people and organisations across the sector. Mm. Now, you did mention to me offline there was a period in your life um, involving your mum and some other things going on. So um, I don't know what you want to say about that. Is that something you want to talk about and, and share? Yes, I'm super happy to do that. I, I think, you know, when I'm thinking about key moments in my life where um, purpose has been um, uh, something that has, um, has been a focus of my attention or thinking or ha there's been a shift in the way I've thought about it, there are three, definitely three very key moments. So that first moment with my granny in India where my eyes were opened that was that kind of awakening moment to a much more in a much more granular way. Um, certainly, the move from corporate world into the role I do now—that is the practical embodiment of actually being able to do all the stuff that I have learned how to do and put it into a place where I can really optimize my impact at a micro and macro level. But I think there is one other moment where, which you reference, which um, which has been really fundamental and is unique to me, um, but which has really meant that I have a different set of parameters or a different set of reference points than maybe others. So um, just after I moved to Australia, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer and unfortunately she died um, just, um, just after I turned 39. She was 66 years old. Um, at that point, I had been going through IVF treatment and uh, literally a matter of two, three weeks after I got back from her funeral, I learned that I wasn't going to be able to have children. So within a month, I lost my mum and I realised I lost, well, I lost the reality of being able to be a mum too. Um, and that changes, that changes somebody. It certainly changed me enormously. It was certainly one of the toughest experiences I've been through actually my work at that time I was a lauder at that point my work at that time was an absolute saving grace that routine of going into work and uh, supporting my team and was just you know that 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 helped me keep going outside of work I was a bit of a mess <laughs> yeah. but it did make me really think well if I'm not going to play a role in um if I'm not going to play a role in society through family, then what, what might that look like? And of course, one thing it does mean is that 
you know, I wasn't going to have any career breaks because from pregnancy or whatever other reasons necessarily. Um, I might choose to take time out for professional development. I could choose to use my time in a different way. And um, also my thinking time is different. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, I, I, I am very, very connected with my team. You know, I, I give a lot because I'm in a position to be able to do that. So um, it, it is a different scenario from many, um, but, and there are pros and cons. I absolutely, it's a conversation I have with close friends. Um, there are absolutely pros and cons. For me as a leader, I know that um, if I had had children, I'm not sure I would be where I am right now. There would have been choices that I would have had to have made that would have been difficult. Yes. And that also makes me value enormously um, working parents, um, whether they are male or female, you know, it doesn't matter. We have an equitable approach to that and recognizing, particularly now through COVID and all the shifts that we've seen with flexible arrangements, you know, recognizing the difference between what's equal and, and you know, what does equal look like and what does equity look like. We're really focused on what that looks like, particularly for working parents, in order to be able to recognize these people have enormous amounts to give, but they're also juggling lots of balls at the same time too. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it was a, that was a, I wouldn't wish that experience on anybody, but um, I learned an enormous amount from it and it put me in a position where I can, I, I really have, I'm in a position where I can do things and have impact in a way that I never believed I would be able to have. And that is exceptionally rewarding. I'm interested in your, view of this when you said you had that tough stage your work helped you get through that yeah in I'm assuming it maybe diverted your focus a little in a healthy way however I can imagine there must be fine lines there between work being people just going too much into their work and ignoring some of the challenges they're facing or yeah. putting it off versus work being a very positive force to remind you there's more to life than than maybe reflecting on everything in the past how do you how do you feel about that? What what advice would you give to someone else who might be listening and is juggling um, yeah. life challenges? Um, well, I'm not sure any of us get it right to start with. I mean, I think I basically just, when, when, when there's a problem for me, it doesn't matter whether it's work or personal, I tend to run harder and faster at it. That's my natural sense. That's my natural character. And so I basically, and I, and I, always work pretty hard but for me it was natural state was to let's lean into work even because I could leave my grief or however I was feeling at, you know when I walked through the door I had to be the leader that my team needed so it was much easier to park my emotions and just feel like I was still making progress and I was doing good work and I was you know delivering and being successful even though I felt like a complete mess on the outside but the reality was, I think I probably was head in the sand for a bit for a period of time. That's also grief. And it wasn't until six months, well, it was probably about four months on when I basically just started bursting, not in the office, but outside the office, just started bursting into tears and in random places, you know, in the middle of the shopping, in the middle of the supermarket or um, at the hairdressers. And at one point, um, my husband turned around to me and said, so... I think you should probably go and talk to somebody because I've tried everything I can think of and it doesn't seem to be helping. So, <laughs> so I basically went to see a clinical psych at that point. And actually, honestly, that's become 
part of my, like what I consider my support group. Um, so um, various times in my life, I, I have gone to see different sorts of people to make sure that I've got the right support at the right moment in time to help me move forwards. Um, it, when I took on this job, I recognized that, um, you know, we talk about, we, we deal with death pretty much every day. Um, how do I make sure that this is a psychologically safe environment for my team and all my, my people and all our nurses? Um, but also, what does it look like for me? So when I took this job um, and my husband said to me, you know, do you think this, he genuinely said, it's not that long since your mum died. How do you think it's going to feel being in this space? And um, and I said, I think it feels okay, but I think I need to make sure I have that back up again. I need to be able to, it's like clinical supervision. You know, I couldn't believe when I arrived um, that nurses, doesn't matter what era of nursing, because it's such an ancient award, it doesn't have clinical supervision written into it. So physiotherapists, dietitians, they all have clinical supervision in the awards, nursing doesn't. So one of the things that we first did was make sure that in our contracts with our nurses, they had clinical supervision built in. Um, and I recognised that we basically needed it across the whole organisation. So um, I have to say, being me, I didn't do it immediately. I probably waited a little bit too long, but I did do it. And now I probably have a started, you know, um, much with much greater frequency. But now I do a check in about once every two or three months. And it just gives me an opportunity to download, download to a professional because as a CEO or leader of any organization, it can be quite isolating. And having the right support crew around you that are confidential and um, are going to really help you process things or make good decisions or address the root cause of problems versus glossing over stuff, um, I think that that's incredibly valuable. So for me, that's partly why I'm part of the Leaders for Impact group because that's my tribe who hold me accountable and who are also my sounding board, my safe space. Um, and then I have, you know, all the usual pieces in the rest of my life, which also includes my, you know, good friends and and my clinical psych. Mm. And I've got to ask, as a corporate leader, when this happened, before you became a not-for-profit leader, did you feel like you had to withhold that personal detail from your work colleagues? Because um... I imagine... We, we've changed over time and I know this was yeah. uh, maybe not that long ago, but I feel like the conversations we have today are perhaps different to the ones we had five years ago. Very, very different. So, uh, for example, in our workplace, we have leave, uh, bereavement leave, which is not just immediate, you know, partner, immediate family. We also have bereavement leave if you've lost your pet, like your dog, because we know that they are family members. We also, um, we know, we... we we enable people to actually donate unused personal leave into a bank so that um, if somebody has run out of personal leave because they're going through a cancer journey or something like that, they can download from that bank. You know, if you think about the kinds of policies that now exist, we are in a very different place. At that time, I was fortunate to, to work in an organisation which was um, quite... Well, they're, they're, we were close. So the leadership team was quite close. And I had a colleague whose mum had um, another form of cancer, but it was a very slow, long process. And so I actually had somebody in the office who really genuinely understood what I was going through. And I think that really helped. Um, 
I didn't want it to be too present. I actually needed it to be separate, but um, it certainly wasn't a conversation with my line manager. It certainly wasn't a conversation with HR as it was then. It was actually about the informal support of colleagues. Yeah, <clears throat> well, that's great. I'm glad um, you've provided a, a bit of a blueprint there for many of us who find ourselves in similar situations. That's great. Now, well, I would say it's never easy. And, and I think one of the things about grief that is a real misconception, and I, I think I would just love to share, it's um, something we talk about a bit at work, is that you know, often people talk about the fact that grief fades over time or it gets less over time. I don't like that analogy at all. What we tend to think about is, if you think of, of grief as a ball, and it's a ball inside a box, when grief first happens, ball fills that box. Over time, the ball stays the same size, the box grows bigger because we all grow and our experience grows. So it's a bit like, you know, very different environment, but you know, if you have children, if you've got two children and you have a third, you don't love the first two any less because the third one comes along. Your capacity to love grows. And so I think that, you know, thinking about grief in a different way, and it is absolutely a process everybody has to go through if you are grieving. It's just recognising how do we help people to do that in a supportive way and be productive and move forwards. I guess it's one area where there's no genuine, easy shortcuts. There's uh, There really there may, isn't. Yeah, maybe some optimization you can do, but no, no real shortcut. Just recognising that you're going to go through all the steps. And I think one of the, the things I would also say is that the model that's often talked about, you know, always um, the last phase that people talk about is acceptance. Now, that model was not created for somebody like me who has lost somebody. That model was actually created for terminally ill patients. So acceptance is actually about accepting that you are going to die and you've got a limited amount of time. Acceptance for somebody who's lost somebody um, is not doesn't mean the same thing. So that's why we often get this kind of disconnect about, well, I never get to the point where I accept that I've lost somebody. Mm -hmm. You know, I cherish the memories. I cherish everything that I experienced and that I learned. That grief, I always miss that person. That's always going to be there. My life, the box is now bigger. Is that the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross model? I think that's right, yeah. Yeah, okay, I'm out. A bush lawyer and a bush psychologist and all those things combined <laughs> so I've, I've got to ping three questions at you to, to yes. round this out and i ask them of, of everyone and it's really just what springs to mind more than anything but i think this first one you might have covered so the first question is what does purpose in life mean to you um purpose in life means having a positive influence on people either in a one-on-one -on -one or a one-to-many environment so it is absolutely knowing that I've played a role in um, having a positive impact on people. Um, it's My focus has always been people, but I love that. I, I really, it's that one-to-one, one-to-many, because what that means is that I know that every single day I can do the one-to-one. -one. The one-to-many might take a long time, but it allows me to take the pieces every single day to keep me moving forwards, knowing that that um, I can also focus on the macro part. Mm. And I did like that model you talked about earlier. I think it was the happiness model where you had the one to one, one to many. Yeah. And also the self care. I think built into that model, which was great. Yeah. Okay. Question number two: What are you looking forward to? 
Oh, wow. Well, right now, I'm looking forward to having a bit of a holiday in a couple of weeks' time. Right. <laughs> that's that's, very, that's um, very good. Any axe um, ex- throwing in mind for that holiday? Uh, hopefully not. It's my father's 80th birthday. Okay. So, um, uh, but yes, I'm doing a trip back to the UK to see family. And that is that feeds my soul. That absolutely feeds my soul. And I make sure I always have a flight in the bank. So I'm never in a position where I can't be there. Even if it's, you know, I have to run to the plane right now, I can do that. Um, That's always very, very important for me. So, yeah, very, very much looking forward to that. Excellent. And the final question, for which there is no right or wrong answer, is from your journey, if you're advising someone who's in, say, earlier on in their career and life journey, you know, about finding meaning, purpose and, and happiness, do you have one tip that would stand out or come to the front of your mind versus others? Absolutely. Um, and it's something I feel really strong about. And you, the starting point is you never know how or when it's going to happen or what it might look like. I certainly didn't in my 20s. And what I've learned is that you open every door and you have every conversation because you never know where they will lead. That's, That's it. That's it. Yeah, I like that. You've, uh, you've got to take a bit of risk in, and go into the unknown a little bit to to really totally. grow and, and, and explore and find things. And you always learn from those conversations, even if it's what you don't want, um, but you learn something from every single person that you speak to. It's why I always have conversations. I am, I, you know, it doesn't matter what my diary looks like. I always say to my team and anybody I work with, I'm never too busy to have the conversation or find the time. It's really important. Fantastic. Well, Holly, thanks for coming on and we'll include the links to the McGrath Foundation in the show notes. And it's certainly been fascinating finding out about your career and life story. And and thanks for sharing your purpose edge with us today. Fabulous. Thank you, Phil. I actually was with our director, uh, our head of marketing earlier, and she was very, I told her about this and she was like, we need to share it. So um, make sure um, we're across everything and um, we'll make sure that we share it amongst the team as well. Fantastic. That's great. Thanks very much. Awesome. Thanks, Phil. Normally, I try to stick to three key takeaways, but I had a couple more this time after this chat with Holly. And by the way, before I launch into them, we did mention or use the acronym ESG in there. That stands for Environmental, Social and Governance Factors, where there's a lot more analysis of company performance in these areas going on at this point in time and will only increase in the future. So in terms of takeaways, I've I've got five broad ones. One, um, the parental influence that she felt her parents really led the way in terms of their values and how they uh, tended to volunteer themselves quite extensively. And I don't have the stats at hand, but I do recall reading that uh, the children of parents who volunteer a lot tend to also volunteer. Maybe you'd expect that, but the, the studies and the science shows that out as well. Secondly, she talked about well, I would call it an impact mindset. She then broke that down into what can I do on a one-to-one basis, a personal basis, and what can I do on a one-to-many basis where I, I guess, leverage my skills and the things I can do through the organizations and other networks that I work with. So I really like that one-to-one and one-to-many differentiation. And the McGrath Foundation does one thing really well. It just focuses on that one thing, funding breast care nurses to help people dealing with cancer. Also quality 
professional development is a big part of the attraction for nurses to come on board and be part of that. And it has that part of it has a big impact for them. Throughout her career, she's always had that end goal in mind of working for a not-for-profit and really putting her energy and dedication there, but she wasn't exactly sure of the detail or the precise pathway of getting there. Which brings me to point number three, serendipity. If you've listened to the previous episodes, this would have come up several times already, and it comes up again and again, I guess, in people's stories. The McGrath Foundation role came up at the right time for Holly. And as a side note, it's not luck, I don't think, it's being prepared for the opportunities that present. Point four, when she's been under strain at various points in her life, whether it's for job reasons or personal reasons, she's focused on being able to give herself enough attention before she tries to help too many others. I also like the way she challenged some misconceptions about grief, so it's worth going back over that part if you want to revisit it. It's well worth going over the back half of the conversation there. And she talked about her supports and how you have to get that balance right between dealing with challenges going on in your life, but not getting stuck in them, being able to move forward at the same time. And there's a delicate balance there. And uh, I admire anyone who can get that piece right. And point five, the final point, you never know exactly how or when things will happen. You've got to open every door and have every conversation. What a great mindset. There's a link to the McGrath Foundation in the show notes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating so we can help more people find it and hone their purpose edge. And if you'd like to drop me a line, a message, add something onto the conversation or something else you really noticed that came through there, I'd love you to get in touch. So please do that. Until next time, I'm Phil Preston and bye for now. Mm -hmm.